Welcome to the Vancouver True Crime Podcast. My name is Mark. I am the host of the show. And this episode is a continuation of the interview that I had with Tara. Tara was the aunt of Vanessa, who died tragically at that Toronto building site. And if you haven't listened to that episode or watched it, uh, please do before this episode, because this is an important piece uh, to that interview. Because when Tara first approached me to to look into the strange circumstances of Vanessa's death, she sent me a testimony from Brandy, who's a mother of Vanessa. And I'm going to read it verbatim. I'm going to leave out names for privacy reasons. But it's important that you look at it through this lens, because again, as the discussion that we had, Tara talks about a lot of events that I'm going to get into more detail leading up to the tragedy at the construction site. So the mother was well aware of this. This is why Vanessa wanted to fly out of Toronto, start a new life in Vancouver because of all these events. So imagine being the mother, knowing that your daughter who had a lot of crisis and going through a lot of stuff, a lot of mental health issues, a lot of crises, and a lot of strange events. And then she dies mysteriously at a construction site. And then you got to look at it from her point of view so you can understand how she feels, the way she feels, be more empathetic to this. Before I do, though, I want to thank everyone uh, for their support of Vancouver True Crime. Yeah, I'm pretty excited. I got some pretty big announcements to make, but I'm going to keep them under under wraps. But they're pretty exciting, and I'm barely contain myself to talk about them. So hopefully pretty soon I'll be able to reveal something pretty exciting that's that I've been working on behind the scenes. Also, um, I want to thank my podcast audience. So I have two audiences, really. I have my platform on Instagram and Facebook, and they're very engaging because I've been more so than lately. I've been posting more local events. The The city of Vancouver is going through a lot of issues right now, a lot of violence, a lot of random stranger violence, teens swarming, people being bear sprayed. It's unprecedented. I've never seen anything like it, and the level of violence is scary, and it's pretty, it's pretty at a crisis level, in my opinion. So my platform, I've been posting more local stories, and it's been taking more of my time. I took a little break from the podcast after the Picton research. The Picton research was pretty monstrous. I probably only put out about 10% of my research. It is a really troubling, dark case, and it really had... Um, a real psychological impact on me. It, 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 it put me in a pretty bad headspace. And because of that, I felt if, I, if it's doing that to me, just as a researcher, imagine what it's doing to the family and having to hear about it. So I decided to make it a policy now. I'm not going to work on cases unless I have the family's involvement. So with Vanessa... I have the family's involvement. We work together and and we're working together to get her story out. So I feel much better about that than uh, talking about these cases. I do think they're important for historical reasons and important to, for these cases not to be forgotten. 
but also at the same time, many of the victim's family members and people connected to the case are around, and I don't want to feel like I am going to be uh, causing them um, you know, emotional distress or pain or suffering by reliving some of these horrific memories. Um, moving forward, the type of cases that I do plan to work on more is I want to work more on stuff on like the the psychological aspects of of crime, not so much the the gore and the violence. Meaning, I'm interested in doing a, a podcast and research on cult activity, uh, occult. Uh, mind control, and that usually has a play in a lot of these crimes. Uh, the person's under some kind of emotional distress or under uh, f- some kind of mental influence to do some of these horrific crimes. I'm going to be touching upon that, uh, looking at different cults and things like that. I'm also very interested in in what's not talked a lot about in our society is narcissistic abuse. Narcissistic abuse has uh, has grown and and... I get so many, especially women, who tell me this about monstrous cases after monstrous cases. I have different groups about different creeps that women have been affected by. And I have a large, engaged uh, audience that's very interested and have been impacted uh, by that subject matter. So I'll be doing more work on that as well because there's also a dark side of dating. You know, there. There's uh, predators use apps and dating apps and stuff like that. So I think it's important to be educated and look for red flags before uh, they happen in your life. So I think that's important and I will be doing stuff like that. Um, If I do stuff regarding, you know, serial killers, it'll probably be in a different context. And sometimes I might have to mention these cases, but I'll be mentioning these cases more in a context, uh, circumstances, maybe comparing cases uh, things of, of that nature, but I won't be doing like, uh, especially with local cases, I won't be doing dark, deep dives into local cases uh, that are local to BC or Western Canada or Canada um, without the family's involvement from now on. So I, I, I just say, you know, I feel better about that. I feel good about that. And, and uh, moving forward, that's what I'm going to be doing. So before I begin, Again, thank you so much. I want to thank my podcast audience. And many people now on my platforms are now discovering that I have a podcast. So if this is the first time you listen to my podcast, thank you so much. And I appreciate it. So this was uh, an email that was sent to me from Brandy when she first contacted me after speaking with Tara. So I'm going to read it verbatim. I'm going to leave out names for privacy reasons and you'll get a good feel of what she's been going through and this will give you more of a a deep dive now into the actual details of the case as well in the interview with Tara we talked about more setting the stage of the circumstances but we didn't really get deep into the details this is going to get a little bit deeper into the case now my name is Brandy I am writing to you regarding my daughter the late Vanessa Amos, also known as Ezra to some, specifically regarding the mishandling of her property, evidence, and the lack of investigation with the completely contradicting statements made by the police detectives that had been passed around since I first notified of my daughter's very suspicious and untimely death. Police initially told me 
that Vanessa allegedly fell, jumped, or possibly pushed from the 25th floor of a high-rise building that was still under construction and the safety fence was either missing or removed. I spoke with Vanessa at 3.13 the same day she died to offer her a ride to the airport. She had booked ticket for April 4th to go and visit family and friends in Vancouver for her birthday, April 5th. I have eyewitness reports who are willing to go on record, including a young couple who first attended to Vanessa before. He said, at first, it appeared to be falling construction debris. But then he saw the movement. So he rushed to see if he could either aid her and shouted for help. He stated that Vanessa was entangled in a blue tarp and clearly had a black extension cord tied around her neck and she was wearing whitish work gloves. She was still alive. She attempted to speak, but no clear words came out. The man also stated he clearly remembers someone shouting, Vanessa, Vanessa, which would imply that she was not alone at the time of her death. Multiple eyewitnesses have stated that the police showed up within minutes. They took no statements from anyone or asked any questions. They cleared the scene within 30 minutes of my daughter's body hitting the ground. The street level corner of Bloor and Bathurst Street, one eyewitness has already given a recorded statement saying that her body could not have come from more than the seventh floor. She also provided photos from both before and after the authorities arrived. In these photos, it shows over a dozen pedestrians standing over her, cars in every direction in the intersection, shattered glass all over the road. She was not questioned by police, neither. She was not questioned by police. My daughter passed away on the evening of March 31st, 2022, at approximately 8.30 p.m. I was notified the following morning, roughly 12 hours later, 8 a.m., April 1st, the OPP officers came to my door. They were very unsympathetic. Initially, they tried to walk away after joking, saying, don't shoot the messenger. We're just relaying a message from 14 Division. My daughter passed away on the evening of March 31st. 2022 at approximately 8.30 p.m. They handed me a card and they told me to call the number and ask to speak to a detective on duty. I called, but they given me the card for the OPP dispatch in Caledonia, resulting the same two officers returning to my home moments later. They barged through my front door without knocking, saying they received a call that I was in distress. One of the officers put his hands on my husband's shoulder and asked him if everything was all right and if they should call an ambulance to take me away for a mental health assessment. I told them to leave. I told them to leave and I replied by stating clearly, I'm not okay. You just told me my daughter is dead. I just called the number you gave me. I then handed the card back to them. He apologized because he forgotten to write down the name and number of the detective 
who was initially in charge of my daughter's case. I proceeded to call the number, but the detective was not in. I managed to pick myself up off the floor. My husband and I, along with two close friends, proceeded to the construction site to speak to the site super regarding the incident. I am a certified health and safety representative who worked in the high-rise industry for nearly a decade. I even worked for the same company that my daughter passed away at. Thus, I'm quite fluent in the understanding of the Ontario's act and regulations as well as on-site policies and procedures. Upon entering the site, the security guard let us in the gate without asking us to identify ourselves or state our business on the site. When I asked to speak to the supervisor, I was initially told that no one was there. I sat in the office and asked for security guards to call the site super. He was on the site and he greeted me within moments. Without identifying myself, I asked about the incident that has taken place the evening before. He replied by saying, what incident? I then broke down and told him who I was and that the person who had lost her life as a result of falling from their building, he then just said, well, it happened after hours. We didn't see anything. I asked if they cordoned off the scene and done an incident report or investigation or reported to the, they said no, because a body fell outside the property and the police told them it was out of their jurisdiction and stay out of it. Keep in mind, this had a 24 on site. Keep in mind, this site had 24 hours on site security and video surveillance. I asked if they knew what floor she came from, and when they said they did not know, I begged them to show me where her body was found. They took me to the approximate area. There was no blood, no conscious tape, no glass, no sign of any incident at all. The building was mostly finished. The windows were already in, and there was no safety fence. It was still unclear as to whether or not she was pronounced dead at the scene or later at the hospital. Vanessa's death certificate states her place of death was Toronto Coroner Office. We proceeded to her apartment that was at 124 Hallam Street, Toronto, to collect her belongings and hopefully find some clues or possible witnesses as she lived in a rooming house with several other people. The front door was open, so we proceeded upstairs to the top floor where Vanessa's room was located. Both her door and her roommate's door was directly adjacent to Vanessa's were ajar. As I opened Vanessa's door, I immediately noticed that all her belongings appeared to be rummaged through and the screen was missing from her open window. This made me very uneasy, and my friends were worried that we may be disrupting a crime scene. There was no caution tape, no incident of a crime scene investigation, and to be cautious, I photographed everything as it was from every angle before we removed any of her belongings. Her cell phone was sitting on a shelf along with other phones, and it was later determined they did not belong to her. Her cell phone was missing, the SIM card, and the entire cartridge that holds a SIM card. We spoke to other people living in the house, one whom said they saw my daughter leaving the night before around 5.30 
with a female roommate known as, I'll call her female roommate. We don't want to name her yet. She lived in a room across from Vanessa. She was not present during the collection of Vanessa's property. Under closer examination of her belongings and paperwork, I found medical records from Toronto West Hospital. It first stated that she was admitted around 11.30 p.m. March 30th. The second record was that of a psychiatric physician who opted to put Vanessa under 72-hour hold as of 12.30 p.m. March 31st, as she was deemed to be an immediate danger to herself or others. Thirdly, there was a handwritten note by a different doctor who signed for her release to attend a court date. That, to my knowledge, did not exist. The record also stated no fixed address. When we got back home, I immediately called the detective again. He was not in. I left the message, but no one returned my call. I called back the following day, April 2nd, spoke with Detective Constable, call him Detective Constable N, assistant, Detective, we'll call him Detective F, who said he had no knowledge of the case and he would look on his partner's desk. He found the file, and he began reading word for word what was inside. It was at this time that I learned Vanessa had been in an incident at the Bradhurst TTC subway station, where there was an altercation between her and the special constables, March 30th, resulting in her hospitalization. Detective F stated that my daughter was allegedly found in a canistonic state near the edge of the subway platform. The special constable said that her body was so limp and lifeless, they had to put her in a resuscitative position where she began to leap from the dead and began repeatedly punching a female officer in the face. The police were called and along with an ambulance and later transported Vanessa to the West Hospital. I have since watched the TTC video and the incident as they describe is nowhere near what really happened. They painted a picture of mental illness and implied my daughter was suicidal, which was completely fabricated. Detective F, Detective F also mentioned my daughter's body being entangled in a blue tarp. He said she was found with no ID, no wallet. My daughter always carried a wallet and she recently updated her ID. Having asked if she could use my address, before she had solidified her current tenancy at the 124 Hallam Street. I watched her open the mail at my home no more three weeks prior to her death and put the pieces into her wallet. To this day, her wallet has never been recovered, and I find it very odd that the authorities were able to ID her so quickly, given the fact she had no ID or wallet. The following days, I received many calls from Vanessa's friends, even her sister in Vancouver, that a man has been answering and texting from Vanessa's phone after death. There was suspicious activity 
on her social media account, and some of her friends sent screenshots, including dates and times, of bizarre after-death messages. One friend stated that the man said, stop calling this number, it doesn't belong to Ezra anymore. She also had been hacked, and mass messages were sent to everyone in her friends list and friends of friends saying, look who died. It was a phishing link that prompted people to enter their login info and passwords. On April 3rd, I managed to get a hold of Detective Constable N and mentioned that her SIM card was missing and there's been suspicious activity. He said she was found with the cell phone and that it was sent to the forensic technician. They assured me they were not answering it. I asked him if he searched my daughter's apartment. He said not yet. I asked him if he knew where her apartment was. He said no. I told him it was too late. I had collected all her things, but not without taking photos of everything. I asked if he would like to see the photos. He said, I don't really think that would be important at this time. I also asked about the blue tarp. He replied, what blue tarp? I asked him also, stating there was nothing in the file regarding the TTC incident. I asked if I could see my daughter's body and pick up her personal effects that were found on her person. Detective W said that all her effects has been sent to the coroner office. I was then referred to coroner Dr. S. At this point, the police had not yet viewed the construction video surveillance. Detective W concluded by saying he'd be out of the office for two weeks and he would be passing the case on to another detective. From that point forward, I was decided it was best to record my future conversations with the police. On Monday morning, April 4th, a press conference in front of the Toronto 14 Division was arranged by the Hamilton Encampment Network, whom my daughter worked very closely in providing care packages, blankets, and food to the homeless people and people in need. Vanessa was very active in her community. She was an advocate for human rights through various platforms, including the LGTBQ community, Aboriginal rights. And when she was younger, she volunteered. When she was younger, she volunteered two years in a row at the Variety Show of Hearts Children Cherry Telethon. She was always helping others. She was always helping others. Only after the press conference, I was greeted by Detective Sergeant B and another of his higher-up, who did not write his name down on a piece of paper I hold in my hand now. They both offered a very hollow-scripted and sincere apology for the lack of sensitivity and communication on the behalf of the department. He did, however, refer to me to a corner office family liaison, the TTC Special Constable Superintendent and a 14 Division Detective G, who is now apparently in charge of my daughter's case. Sergeant B., then went on to hand me a brochure outlining how to make a formal complaint against the police. It was written in Arabic, a language I'm not familiar with. I immediately called Detective G, but of course he was not in the office. The first thing I did after the press conference was to call the coroner office to find out the cause of death because up to this point it only has been speculation. 
I spoke with Dr. S to see if I could see her body and asked what was the official cause of death. He said he ruled her death a suicide. However, when I asked if he'd done a toxicology screening, rape kit, or contusion differentials, given the altercations with the four male TTC special constable the evening before her death, Dr. S. responded by saying, well, why would I do that? The police brought her in under the impression that it was a suicide. She had multiple blunt force trauma and contusions that was consistent with a fall from heights. When I asked for a review to include these tests, he said the inquests are rarely granted. It was if I insulted his medical professional opinion at this time, I was told I could not see Vanessa and her body and it would be released to a funeral home of my choice. Then he went on to say he'd be out of the office for two weeks and I was to refer to his assistant. Later that evening, we chose the Bay Garden Funeral Home in Burlington and made arrangements for her body to be picked up the following day. April 5th. What would have been Vanessa's 23rd birthday? I was on my way to the funeral home and a friend suggested that I ask for a forensic pathologist inquest. They also mentioned once the body has left the coroner office, it cannot be done. When I arrived at the funeral home, my first question to the coordinator was whether or not they had picked up her body. Luckily, they have not. So I immediately put a hold on her transport. I called the family liaison at Toronto Coroner's office and voiced my concern. She mentioned that she found it quite unusual that my daughter was brought in with no pants on. She promptly sent the paperwork and put in for a forensic pathologist inquest, including the full spectrum of tests that were not initially done. She was very apologetic. She was very kind and told me my daughter was very beautiful. I was expected that I'd be having a closed casket funeral given the fall from alleged 25th floor on pavement. So I asked about the condition of her body. She said she was fully intact and suitable for an open casket. When I told her my daughter fell 25th floors, she was astonished. The condition of my daughter's body did not correlate with a fall of that magnitude. Her body would now be held for another week. The result of the forensic inquest, I've been told, will take 8 to 10 months. The following days, I repeatedly attempted to get into contact with Detective G to no avail. When I asked to speak with the detective on duty, whom a name I can't remember, I was asked how they determined my daughter fell from the 25th floor, he said they found vomit on the 18th floor. I asked how did he know it was my daughter vomit? Could have been literally hundreds of workers from various trades coming and going on a high-rise project at any given time. I asked him, 
did he do a DNA test? He responded by saying something along the lines of, this ain't the CSI TV show. I also expressed my concern that I'd been unable to reach the detective in charge of my daughter's case. The man I was speaking with was very rude and he said, well, we can't sit here waiting for your call, giving you updates every five minutes. This honestly angered me. I replied by saying, it's been nearly one week since my daughter died, and up to this point, I haven't received not one single courtesy call from any detective that has been signed on my daughter's case. In the weeks leading up to my daughter's death, she has been keeping some very strange new company, and including a self-proclaimed morbid photographer. When I was searching through Vanessa's social media accounts, I have found he's been photographing her. She has been photographing with him in days of her death. These photographs are very compromising, distasteful, and partially nude. They're not artistic by any normal standards. They're rather raunchy, if you ask me. There's a photo of my daughter sitting nude in a red chair, among with other photos that made me very uncomfortable on her social media account. I was not familiar with before she died. This picture in particular titled Red Rum in all caps. As I mentioned before my daughter's social media accounts were hacked within days following someone using her account adding and deleting photos and captions including photos entitled Red Rum to Murder. I am not the only one who witnessed this. I received many calls from her friends that have noticed this and took screenshots of it. I also found photos of my daughter on his Instagram site that appear to be taken at a high-rise construction site. You can see in the background of the photos, a mother's intuition tells me that this person had something to do with her death. And if he did not, then prove it. I mentioned this person of interest to the police. As I said before, the facts that someone was answering her phone after she died, the strange activity on her account, the screen missing out of her window, her belongings strewn about, her missing SIM card, missing wallet, the photos I took of the apartment, and no matter what I told the detective, they literally had zero interest in investigating anything. Nearly a week after my daughter's death, I received the first call from Detective G. I recorded our conversation and still have those recordings. I'd be happy to share them. When I spoke to him of the blue tarp, he initially said, what blue tarp? Then the next time we spoke, he said, maybe the blue tarp was used as some sort of cape and explains the trajectory of her fall. I asked, when could I pick up her personal items and also mention she was brought into the coroner's office with no pants on. So I assumed the police had her pants. Detective G said they had they didn't have the pants or the tarp. They did have her backpack, bow speakers, her shoes, but the tarp would not be considered a personal item of value, so it may have been discarded. I responded by asking, "Well, who are you to decide what's important or isn't important?" I was so confused as why her belongings were separated in the first place. If she would pronounce dead at the scene again, all these conflicting conversations recorded. When I picked up her personals, and a few days later, sure enough, there was an evidence bag. When I picked up her personals, 
And a few days later, sure enough, there was an evidence bag that said, now deceased, and then the accused crossed out. It contained a backpack, shoes, portable bow speakers, and lo and behold, the tarp, but no pants or underwear. Oddly enough, the pants would randomly turn up after she was transported to the funeral home and the items were logged at the coroner office, also went missing. I contacted the liaison who sent me the log to assure me that the items were with her. A group email was sent out to all the relevant parties involving with the transport of Vanessa's body. Sure enough, everything, including two pairs of pants or underwear, were never logged at any point. They showed up the next day before her viewing. It's also worth mentioning, too, that the black cord also has gone missing and never been found again. So according to the eyewitness that I play um, at the end of the podcast, or the last one, the eyewitness saw a black extension cord that had a, a, a very well-tied knot around her neck. He was asking if anyone had a knife to cut it. I still continue. My daughter did not have a criminal record. She did, however, retain a lawyer who two days before her death, after she was beaten and hospitalized by police earlier, Vanessa and five others with the Hamilton Encampment Network was charged after the police showed up to what would some call a tent city and told the residents they had to vacate immediately. Vanessa and her colleagues were handing out food and care packages to less fortunate. They originally charged Vanessa for resisting arrest and assaulting a police officer, but those charges were dropped before they ever went to court. I saw my daughter's body before she was sent to my home after the hospital. I gave her fresh clothes. She was bruised and welted from head to toe with a horrible black eye resulting broken blood vessels in her eye, ball turning it completely red. They also handcuffed her so tightly that rings were cut in her tiny wrists. She also held a press conference. She spoke out the way she was mistreated. Maybe all of this is why the police cared so little to investigate a person's death. If she was alive and was about to launch an investigation on them, I'm still not clear to why my daughter was released from the hospital after a 72-hour hold. She was to meet with her lawyer the next day she died. She never made it to that appointment. She also had many other appointments booked, including her flight dates and times to go to Vancouver, doctor appointments. I do not believe my daughter committed suicide, nor do any of her family or friends.